0: Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you will bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would continue to form us into the likeness of your son, that you would increase our vision of you, and that you would continue to compel us toward faithfulness to you, for the sake of our good and for our great joy, and for the sake of your glory. Amen. You know, when God saves somebody, he displays perfect power in the midst of their weakness. That's one of the threads of the book of 2 Corinthians, that God displays his perfect power in the midst of our weakness. He gave perfect power to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus to a weakened apostle named Paul. He gave perfect power to the Corinthians to be his ambassadors for Christ, even though they were once in weakness as his enemies. And as we turn to chapter 8 of the book of 2 Corinthians, we see that God gave perfect power to a group of Christians in Macedonia to give with exceeding generosity, despite the fact that. They were incredibly weak in their poverty. And that example of Christian giving and generosity that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter eight points us to some spiritual realities about power and weakness and growth as Christians as well. Now, when we think about the topic of giving and generosity, I imagine that there are probably some of us that have a variety of sentiments. I think of the little girl who Had experienced a major breakthrough in her life. After years of having to rely on her parents, she finally learned how to tie her own shoes. And with that major breakthrough came a mixture of emotions, both excitement, and at the same time, she was overcome by tears. And her father asked her, Why are you crying? She said, I have to tie my shoes. And he said, well, you just learned how, and it isn't that hard, is it? And she said, I know, but now I'm gonna have to do it for the rest of my life. (laughs) And my hunch is is that some of us might feel that way when it comes to the idea of generosity or giving. When we put our faith in Jesus and we have an expanded view of God and a unique view of the world and an appropriate view of everything that we have by way of our spiritual possessions, we find excitement in the fact that we get to participate in what God is doing through ongoing giving and generosity. But I'd imagine for some of us, there might also be just a tiny bit of dread because we know that we're called to do this over and over again for the rest of our lives. But the conversation about generosity isn't a conversation that is just about money. The concept of generosity certainly includes our money and giving of it, but it's much bigger than that. Generosity is a disposition. It's a disposition that is based on Two convictions. What's a disposition? A disposition is something that becomes a tendency, a predominant tendency or a state of mind or an orientation. It's how you look at the world. Generosity is a disposition in which Christians are called to grow It's not a disposition that comes naturally to most of us. Most of us have a disposition that's bent the other direction, a disposition that says what I've earned is mine, my relationships are mine, my resources are mine, and all of those things exist to serve my purposes in the world. But when you have the dual convictions that the scripture teaches regarding who God is and how God works, then, and only then, can generosity become that disposition in your life. And the two convictions are this. Conviction number one is that God is a generous king. And as a generous king who owns everything, he creates generous people. And conviction number two is that you and I, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, have a really unique opportunity in this life and a unique responsibility in this life to make something that is invisible visible. God is invisible. (laughs) And some of his work is invisible. And part of the Christian life is making the invisible visible. Those are the convictions that drive a disposition of generosity. And let's turn our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as we see how this generosity is exposed. Up to this point in the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has gone a number of different depths about the relationship that people have to God, about the nature of God's glorious grace and his majestic person, of defending his apostleship and his care and love for them as they have defended him as well. And now he seemingly takes a little turn. And in this turn, he is moving of how the grace of God has been applied to their life spiritually. And he is going to show them one of the many ways in which this grace, this invisible grace, will be made visible in them practically. He says this, starting in verse 1. In speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich." For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness that your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack." Sometimes, when we think about the idea of generosity, we need examples that will compel us toward reconsidering our own state as it relates to our material possessions. And Paul gives two examples to the Corinthian church and two examples to us by extension. The first example is found in the Christians in Macedonia. These are the churches who, it tells us in verse two, were extremely poor. And yet, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. You need to stop and think about that for a moment. And when you do, you have to pause and ask yourself a question because this is not normal behavior for people who are extremely poor. When you are extremely poor, your tendency would generally be to preserve to provide for your needs tomorrow (laughs) and the day after and the day after because you don't know what the next day will bring. And yet, we have to ask the question, what makes these Christians so inclined toward extravagant, extravagant generosity despite their extreme poverty? And part of the answer is found in right away in verse one, Paul is talking to them about the weekly collection. He's talking to them about what we call the offering. And he describes this as the grace of God that has been given. Huh. This act of regular giving among the christians in their local church family is not superficial in its nature it's not obligatory in its motive it wasn't considered payment for services rendered or it wasn't in response to their preferences. They liked the music that day and so they put another 20 in the offering plate. Or maybe they liked the sermon last week and so they felt compelled to give more. This regular act of giving wasn't in response to a unique and compelling vision by their leader. This act of giving was a reflection of something invisible. Something that their giving made visible. It was a reflection of grace. They attributed their giving to God's grace to them, His overwhelming, undeserved favor that rested upon them. And they considered themselves to have God's grace, to have God's favor upon them, even though they were exceedingly poor. Now, most people would say, well, clearly God's blessing is upon you if you are exceedingly rich. If you have great means or great health or wonderful aspects of prosperity, then God must be blessing you. But these Christians, it says, were poor and in great affliction. You might even say that they were being crushed by the difficulty of life and still... They focused on God's favor upon them, his grace. And in fact, this word grace is used eight times in chapters 8 and 9. This giving that Paul is talking about, this giving is all about grace. And this grace, this invisible reality which becomes visible through this activity, causes them to well up with generosity. Now, when we talk about welling up with something, 99 times out of 100, we use that expression to say someone wells up with emotion, don't we? And to say somebody wells up with emotion means that they have an overpowering urge to cry. (laughs) Sometimes you'll see people, sometimes you might see me well up with emotion and try to hold back these glorious truths about God as we talk about them together, uh, sometimes you can't help it when emotion overtakes you. And here, Paul uses this expression to talk about their generosity. They well up to an overpowering, overtaking desire to give of themselves. Why? Because God had saved them from themselves. They didn't deserve God at all. He was still providing for them spiritually and, albeit meager, he was providing for them physically and they viewed all of their resources as belonging to him. So much so that when they see God work in a need among other brothers or sisters, they well up. They cannot help but open up their hands and say, We want to participate in this. Paul didn't need to constrain them to a particular amount. He didn't need to put one of those big thermometers up in the front of the church to say we're almost to the goal. They had an attitude. They had a disposition. They desperately wanted to be part of what God was doing And so, in fact, verse 4 tells us they begged for the opportunity to participate. These people who had almost nothing begged to give the rest of it away. That's how strongly they wanted this invisible grace to be made visible for everyone to see. And so you see this bizarre reality, at least bizarre by the world's eyes, that these people had so much joy because what God had done in their life, that joy plus severe affliction plus poverty equals wealth. That's more confusing than common core math. Joy plus severe affliction plus poverty equals wealth. Only the gospel can do that. Only the overpowering grace of God for people who don't deserve Him can do that. And so the poor acted in generosity. And notice another component of what led them there. Verse five says that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves first to the Lord. That's another way of saying that they surrendered themselves into every area of their life to the God who had saved them. And when they surrendered, this resulted in generosity. Now the notion of surrendering to God, all of ourselves to God, is to say, and to recognize, and to live in accordance with the conviction. God, you are the king. You're the generous king, you give us everything we have. In fact, you give us more than we need. I want my priorities to be your priorities, and I want your priorities to be so embedded within me that I come in line with who you are and what you're trying to do in this world. I surrender my allegiances, I surrender surrender my motivations, I surrender my desires, and I surrender all of my physical realities to you and to your purposes and to your plans. King David was an example of one who surrendered and surrendered regularly to God. First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 through 14, he gives us a glimpse of God's incredible majesty and in surrender and the participation of Israel in giving back to him. He says, "'Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power "'and the glory and the victory and the majesty, "'for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours.'" Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as the head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to? thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given to you. There's a viewpoint in this life regarding our material possessions. A short-sighted narrow viewpoint of life is I earned that. And it's mine to do with whatever I want to do. To serve my purposes, to serve my comfort, to serve my desires. And this is not to say, friends, that you shouldn't work hard and pursue all of your skills and abilities and gifts that God has given you, even to earn But there's a bigger view of reality. The one who has a larger viewpoint steps back and looks at the majestic king of the universe and says, you're the one who gives strength and power and might because you are the mighty one. You're the one who gives riches and wealth because you are the ultimate wealthy one. And anything and everything that I have comes from you and so when you see him more clearly you are positioned more rightly and surrender is the natural result. You willingly give all of you to God because of the grace that he has shown to you. And surrender is an ongoing dynamic in this life. You don't just surrender your whole person once to God because if you're anything like me, you surrender it today, but tomorrow you're probably going to try to take it back. (laughs) We surrender regularly and daily our relationships, our aspirations, and perhaps most difficultly is our money. And so there's a principle at play Here, it becomes really difficult for you to give of material wealth if you've not yet given yourself to the Lord. It's a massive struggle for you to be open-handed and generous for the purposes of God if you've not given your whole self to the Lord. And in fact, it might actually be dangerous for you (laughs) because you could maybe convince yourself that you're doing just fine along the way as you buy your favor from this eternal king However, the principle functions this way. When you've already given the whole to God, it becomes much easier for you to give of the parts to him. When you've already given everything you are and everything you desire to be, all that you have you recognize in its appropriate place in light of this majestic king, then it becomes much easier easier to give the material or financial parts to him. Because it's his anyway. You know, when you go to a doctor for your annual checkup he or she will often begin to poke and prod and press in various places. I was at the doctor last week for the first time in a couple of years and he says, does this hurt? Does this hurt? Does this hurt? How about that? And if you cry out in pain, one of two things has happened. Either the doctor has pressed too hard without the right amount of sensitivity. Or more likely, there's something wrong. And the doctor will say, well, we better do some more tests because it's not supposed to hurt here. (laughs) So it is when we come across scriptural teaching about generosity and giving and financial responsibility. And certain ones of us might cry out in discomfort or we criticize the message or the messenger. One of two things has happened. Either the pastor's pressed too hard (laughs) without the right amount of sensitivity or there's something wrong. And if that's the case, we say, my friend, we're in need of a great physician because it's not supposed to hurt here. (laughs) And yet so often it does. But friends, if you surrender all of who you are and what you have to God, then you experience a unique type of grace that will become in you a conduit of grace to other people, God's favor. And the language that's used around this in this passage is really striking. It's language of partnership. Because even though we think about our finances individually, uh, which we're all responsible for our individual finances, there is also an element of a collective for the church family. And so he uses language, just listen to it. will be on the screen behind me here. He uses these powerful words of partnership. Grace, privilege, partnership, sharing, service, ministry, Earnestness, love, willingness, generosity, abundance, a liberal gift, and an undertaking. These are things that we do together. And what is displayed in that is that an invisible grace is made visible as we excel together in generosity. So that's the first example. That Paul gives us with the example of the poor. The second example is the exact opposite. It is the example of the richest one. It's the example of Jesus. Look at verse 9. He says this, "...for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." If the first example is of the poorest of the poor, the second example is of the richest of the rich, Jesus himself. And of course, this verse is not just referring to a divine swap of material wealth, but it is also the reality that Jesus left the glories of heaven so that you might gain those same glories. He left the perfect place, deity in form, no imperfections around him, no pain, perfect physical fellowship with the Father. He left the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth, and he did so so that you and me might gain those very same riches of heaven through him. This is the sacrifice before the sacrifice. The incarnation of Jesus, his leaving heaven and coming to earth, was leaving much so that you can gain much. And it was the ultimate example of generosity. And so you see the poor giving much and you see the rich giving much and Paul is all driving those two contrasting but similar examples toward the reality of verses 13 through 15 of a shared ownership of Christians in spiritual and physical needs so that nobody is lacking. So those two examples Paul briefly addresses Titus, and then he gives the encouragement. And this is the encouragement for the Corinthians, and it's the encouragement for you as well. There's a conviction, two convictions behind this encouragement. We've mentioned them, right? Conviction number one, God is the majestic king. Conviction number two, we have an opportunity and even a responsibility to make something that is invisible visible. And that helps us to move from obligation to excelling in generosity. Check out verse seven. He says, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. As you excel in everything, as you grow. And it's striking that he puts these things, these spiritual gifts that he mentions, all the things that you want to grow in as a Christian, you want to grow in faith because you love God. You want your speech to become more godly. You want your knowledge of him to be more precise and more robust. You want your earnestness and contention for the Lord to continue to expand as you grow in faithfulness. You want your love to continue to grow and right Parallel alongside all of those growth areas that you want to excel in, he parallels this particular act of grace as well the grace of giving. When you become a Christian, you grow. That's what God does in you. Your faith strengthens and it forms your outlook on life. You begin to change who you act like and what you do. You see things more clearly. You have a unique view of an eternal reality. Your picture of the world around you is drastically expanded. You grow, and one of the great things about growing as a Christian, I love to hear all of your stories about the ways that God is growing you, all of those little points where it's not supposed to hurt there, but it does, but it doesn't hurt there anymore this year, even though it did last year, or I've been really struggling and trying and contending to grow in this area, and finally, my effort was matched with God's grace, and I'm continuing to grow, and my joy is growing, and I'm zealous for the things of God, and it's great to hear new Christians who grow, who, like, totally wow my my world was rocked. I didn't deserve God and he saved me and now I'm headed in a totally different direction. And it's great to hear people who are 83 years old continue to grow. They've been following Jesus for 60 years and yet they continue to grow from the moment of their conversion all the way to the moment that you die. As a Christian, you grow. And we ask the question, have you made it an intentional effort to grow in this way <laughs> because here's the reality your growth is related to that surrender we talked about a moment ago it's pretty easy to surrender some areas of your life <laughs> it's a little harder to surrender other areas of your life and there are some areas of your life where you just want to hold on with a very tight grip And for the vast majority of us, one of those areas is money. (laughs) Notice, by way of observation, Paul isn't talking about tithing here. Tithing is an Old Testament law of giving 10% of the Jewish believer's income back to God as first fruits, the tithe. In the Jewish Old Testament, there was a number of other offerings and gifts, alms for the poor, and a temple tax that meant the average Jew would give 22 to 24% of their income back to God in some form or another. Paul isn't talking about law. He's talking about a weekly collection, a rhythm of Christian giving that's often referred to as sacrificial giving. He says that this is in proportion with what you have, verse 12. And the example of Jesus is disproportionate in the amount of grace that he gives compared to what we deserve. And so there's this charge to excel in this grace of giving, for you to excel in generosity. Generosity is when you forego something else in order to be generous, isn't it? Um, And it's hard. It's hard to be generous, at least at first. There's a lot of obstacles to generosity. Um, The biggest ones are probably debt. Some of us say, I'd like to be generous, but I just have a lot of debt. And I can't be generous if I'm constantly serving this debt. Some of us say, uh, I want to be generous, but you know what? It's going to really change my lifestyle. And I want a high lifestyle. That's why I work so hard. Or some of us have expectations for our future that prevent us from being generous now. Others of us say, you know, I'd like to be generous, but that means I probably can't take three vacations a year to really nice places. I don't know if I want to give that up. Some of us are saying, Pastor, I'm with you. Like, I'm excited about what God is doing. I, I see that I in no way, shape, or form deserve his grace in my life. I'm absolutely enamored with the fact that the eternal king of the universe wants anything to do with me. I wanna excel in giving, I just don't really know how to get there. Because it's hard and my financial life is complicated. Let me remind you of what I call the arrow of progress. This is a little chart that we've used before and you might find yourself somewhere on here. How do you grow in generosity? Well, it starts in the way left side of it and that starts with what we would just call a decision. (laughs) A decision to become generous. Most of us, left to our own devices, are not just gonna naturally become generous because there's always something to spend on, right? And so you need to make a decision. I want to grow or excel in this grace, as Paul says. That then is met sometimes on the very left side of what we might call the what we feel like is impossible. I have a tangled financial mess of debt or a lifestyle or expectations. My finances currently don't allow me to be generous. And after a time, and after you make your decision is actually met with some action and you start to unwind the rat's nest of your money a little bit, you then can start to practice some sort of generosity. Maybe for some of you that's just like, I gave 1% of my income more than I did last year and that's a step to the right. Sometimes it's 2% or 3% or sometimes it's even more, but it's a consistent thing, but still there's a sense of obligation attached to it. You know what obligation is? Obligation is is when your conviction for something drives you to action, but your heart really isn't in line with it. And so at that moment, typically if you're obliged to something you don't want to, you look for excuses not to obey, (laughs) Well, I wanted to be generous, but, you know, I'm sure God will overlook it now because I have this, or he understands my situation, or he understands that. But you know, there's something that happens after a while of that. When you're in obligation, and your conviction still drives your action, and your heart is maybe just taking a while to catch up, but it does catch up, there's a switch that flips. And I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times and hundreds and hundreds of people. The switch that flips is you move from obligation to an excitedness because you're recalibrated. Your heart and your vision is recalibrated. And now, instead of looking for excuses not to obey, you start looking for reasons to be generous. God, you are the majestic king of the universe. Your generosity has been applied to me in incredible ways. I see you for who you are. I've seen again and again your... Overwhelming provision in my life, and now I'm excited to give. And I'm looking for opportunities to continue to grow in that way. And then that moves to the farthest right, which is what we would call excelling in giving. That's a rapid growth in generosity. That's begging, as the Macedonian Christians did, for the opportunity to participate in the work of God with their even minimal financial resources. I wonder where you are on the arrow. I wonder what you need to do to take just one step to the right. One step to grow in this grace. Friends, as we come down the home stretch, let's take a step back and draw out a few more implications of this generosity. The first one is that you need to know that giving is not a way of transferring your earthly treasures to heaven. That giving is a way of saying that my earthly treasures don't compare to the treasures of heaven. There's a big difference. There's a difference in just trying to gain more for yourself rather than recognizing that above everything, I treasure Christ that I long to be with God in person, that no matter how much I have, they will never meet, those material things will never meet my greatest desire and my greatest need. You could be the richest person in the world and be left empty on the inside because there is one that is worth treasuring above it all. Jesus Christ. And so when we give in generosity, we are saying that these things don't compare with that treasure. Secondly, we say that this is not simply a way of imitating Jesus, but rather it points to the life-changing grace that you receive through Jesus. You receive grace. God gives you more grace as you become a conduit of his grace. This grace is Invisible to many people, but it's made visible through generosity. Thirdly, we say that giving is not fueled simply by obligation nor motivational strategies, it's fueled by joy and gratitude for what God has given. Invisible grace is made visible, and it's joyfully done so as we excel in generosity. Imagine yourself. The richest woman in the world. Owner of numerous estates, mansions, slaves, or servants on three continents. Then imagine giving up every penny of it for Christ's sake. Melania the Younger did just that. Melania was born in the year 383. She is the richest person in the world that you have never heard of. She was reared a Christian. She loathed the decadence of Rome, even as a child, and she wanted to follow an ascetic and celibate life, believing, believing that that was her path to perfection. Her wealthy parents insisted, however, that she marry, and the man that they chose, uh, Pananius, was a cousin on her father's side. He was also the heir to an immense wealth, And a nominal Christian. And so when they got married shortly after Melania's 14th birthday, Pananius was just three years older. At the age of 17 and 14, they became one of the richest couples in the entire Roman Empire. With holdings in Italy, Sicily, Gallia, Spain, Britain, Carthage, Numidia, Mauritania, Mesopotamia, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt and their holdings included thousands of slaves. After the marriage, Melania applied Christ's command to the rich young ruler, to herself, and she wanted to give away all that she owned because she saw the decadence of their holdings as the biggest danger that she could possibly have. In allegiance to this world. And she wanted her allegiance to be with Christ. And so they began selling their property, giving money to advance the work of the gospel, to show their true allegiance and helping people in need. Their holdings were so vast that the work of divesting of them took decades. In Italy alone, they freed 8,000 slaves. One of their mansions was so expensive they could find no buyer in the entire world for it. In the year 408, the still wealthy couple left Rome because of the advance of the Visigoths. They settled in Sicily. In 410, they moved to North Africa with Melania's mother, and they divested their African holdings. There, Melania met Augustine of Hippo and one of his colleagues, and supported the gospel work there. They founded a nunnery and a monastery and gave freely wherever there was need. In 417, Melania and her mother and Pinianus moved to Jerusalem by way of Egypt. In Alexandria, they met the church father, Cyril, who was opponent to the bishop Nestorius, whose views on Christ were heretical. They later established residence in Jerusalem. She would go back and visit the desert fathers. In Jerusalem, Melania became acquainted with the famous Bible scholar Jerome and supported his work there. She founded a monastery for 90 virgins on Mount of Olives and she refused to head the institution. But shortly after settling in Jerusalem, they distributed the last of their vast wealth. Finally, after decades, they now lived in poverty. They were dependent upon others. She secluded herself for prayer and fasting and she viewed the remaining part of her life, the Mary years. The first part, the Martha years, the years of service. The last part, the Mary years, the years of feasting on Christ's teaching and presence. She was concerned for her uncle, so she went to Constantinople where she led him to Christ on his deathbed. She repudiated the views of this deposed Bishop Nestorius. She won followers back to Orthodoxy. And back in Jerusalem, she received a visit from the Empress of in 438. It was the last significant event of her life Melania, the younger, died on December 31st, 439. What a picture of overwhelming, a welling up in generosity. She had all of the treasures of the world at her fingertips, and she treasured Christ. even more friends God doesn't call you to give away all that you have (laughs) he doesn't necessarily call you to live impoverished being supported by others but he does call you to surrender all that you have to him he calls you to treasure Christ above all And when you do, you excel in generosity. And when you do, you make something that is invisible, visible. Invisible grace is made visible as we excel in generosity. Friends, and as I close, I just want to say it is a great joy to see us continue to grow in this way as a church. We have grown. We've seen it. We've experienced it. We've grown individually. We've grown corporately. I'm sure there's more growth individually that you might be challenged with in this. I know there is for me. And yet, when you do this, no one is left lacking, as the scripture says in verse 14 and 15. When you do this, we can do things like build a church in Africa and commission it this next week. We can do things like help mothers who are, or pregnant women who are struggling and confused and scared at the crossroads of life and give them hope and direction and guidance for the future. When you do this, pastors, 55 pastors in the middle of the bush get trained to serve others well. When you do this, we dig wells so they can drink not only spiritual water, but also physical water. And the list goes on and on and on because there's a majestic king who's given you everything. And as you give back to him in generosity, the grace continues. So let's continue and let's pray. Father, help us in this, we pray. Thank you for your work among us. Give us joy. Loosen our grip on our material wealth. Help us to display the allegiance of heaven rather than the allegiance to this world and continue to give grace, we ask. Amen.